John chapter 9, where we left off, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Or, It's me, dude. Verse 10. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can such a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son who you saw say was blind, born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that he is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? <laughs> then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing. That you do not know where he is from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. 
in the first seven verses of the chapter, the blind beggar, you'll remember, is the recipient of a miracle. He receives the gift of sight, and this miracle is going to result in a series of vicious attacks. The religious leaders will attack the blind man, former blind man's faith, his family, and in the end of the chapter, his friend, Jesus. The controversy of the miracle will lend to a confrontation by the sighted man. It begins with his neighbors in verses 8 through 12. It continues with the religious leaders in verses 13 through 34. And then later, the confrontation is going to take place between himself and Jesus at the end of the chapter in verses 35 through 41. And the contention of the miracle will lead, if you will, not simply over the identity of Jesus Christ, but in this particular passage, we see an unfolding concerning his identity. The man's restored vision results in a progressive unfolding of spiritual insight. I want you to note that at the beginning, in verses 8 through 12, Jesus is seen as a man. And then in verses 13 through 15, Jesus is seen as a miracle worker or a healer. In verses 16 and 17, he's seen as a prophet. In verses 18 through 27, he's seen as the Savior. In verses 28 through 34, he's seen as being of God or from God. And then in verses 35 through 38, he's seen as the Son of God. And the chapter will end with the lesson of Jesus and the confession of the man born blind in verses 39 through 41. And so as we've been examining the Gospel of John, we see that the controversy continues. Who is this man? Who is he? When you were a child, did you ever play the game Blind Man's Bluff? Do you remember how it goes? One person is blindfolded and the other people hide. But the real, the, real, the great thing about Blind Man's Bluff is you don't have to have a lot of places to hide. Because remember, the person who's looking for you is blind. And remember, the object of the game is to get the blindfolded person to change direction by teasing them, by coaxing to them, by calling to them. And remember, the object of the game is for the blind man to touch the sighted man, and then the sighted man becomes the blind man. That's exactly what's taking place in this story. Only... The blind man has become the sighted man, and the sighted men now become the blind men. The Bible teaches that human beings are born blind, in the dark, without the gospel. And so in this passage, there is this progressive unfolding of the eyes of the heart and with that progressive unfolding of the eyes of the heart, you begin to see Jesus clearer and clearer and clearer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul wrote, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we don't preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The idea is there's a huge difference between sight and seeing. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the former century, the 19th century, said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand, unquote. The idea being those times we think we see when we don't really see. When we need to see. We live in a world that thinks it sees the priorities of life clearly. But you will never be able to understand the priorities of life until you see Jesus. And so, according to the Bible, we have to admit that we were blind. The blind man doesn't argue with Jesus. He acknowledges his condition and need. He submits to Jesus. He submits to the miracle. And then the miracle gives him the ability to see with his eyes and By the time we come to the end of the chapter, he'll be able to see with his heart. And that's what I'm hoping you'll be able to do. I'm hoping you'll be able to see not just with your eyes, but with your heart. Look at verse 8, stage 1. Seeing him as a man, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am in the original language. I am he. It's me. Look, it's me. And remember what I told you earlier, that we have every reason to believe that this man had no eyes. There were holes. There were black, dark, empty sockets that, that now contained eyes. And you can imagine, if you've ever seen a person with no eyeballs, that once they do have eyeballs, their whole countenance change, their face change, their their, their whole appearance changes. And so here's the question, is this really the blind beggar that Jesus had healed? Because remember, there are those who are going to later accuse him of a sort of a theological bait and switch. This isn't a real miracle. Jesus didn't really heal anybody. He just baited One supposedly blind person for another supposedly blind person. And it's all one big, fat, stinking fabrication. But it's not true. A real man has really been healed. Clearly, the neighbors and later the religious leaders are reluctant to acknowledge the healing or the healer. And a lot of people want to do exactly the same thing. They don't want to acknowledge the stubborn claims of Jesus. They don't want to acknowledge the stubborn claims of your life. Have you ever gone up to a person and they ask you a question, are you a Christian? And you give your testimony and you talk about how Jesus changed your life. And they go, you're lying. Jesus doesn't change people's lives. No, people aren't usually that rude. That's exactly what they mean when they say, I don't believe you. I don't believe the claims of Christ. Look in verse 10. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? Now, by the way, four times in this chapter, that question is asked. 
How were you healed? In verse 10, in verse 15, in verse 19, in verse 26, the neighbors asked first, the religious leaders asked second. Not satisfied with the man's answer, the religious leaders asked the man's parents. It all looks so official and efficient. Look, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Can you imagine? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the unbeliever in charge of do miracles really happen? Doesn't that seem to be the people who want to talk most about miracles? The people who don't even believe that they exist? But we know that they do exist. And the reason why we know that they exist because a real God can penetrate into a real world The people are afraid of the truth. And the religious leaders are in conducting the investigation not because they want to thoroughly examine the evidence. Listen carefully. Because they want to make the evidence go away. Because if you can make the evidence, if you can make the miracle go away, then you can make the miracle worker go away. And that's really the key here. In verse 11, it says, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. The man born blind describes his experience. All he knew at that point, a man, a man called Jesus. And remember what happened to the blind man. He was confronted by Jesus. He was commanded to do some things and he obeyed the commands of Jesus. And we all come into that particular portion of our life where Jesus shows up. He commands us to do some things and we obey or disobey the commands and listen carefully any time in this process, any time in this spiritual journey, when Jesus said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, he could have said, nut. You're some sort of rabbinical nutcase. Look, you take dirt, you spit on the dirt, you, you stick them in my eyes. That's not good medicine. That's not good science. And it's not good theology. I'm not going to go to the pool of Siloam, and I'm not going to go wash because I think you're a quackmeister. End of the journey. That's what happens to a lot of people. I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't believe in the Bible, and I'm, I'm not going to hear what the Bible has to say, and I don't care what the Bible has to say. But guess what? The man experienced a miracle. Even with an incomplete understanding of Jesus, I want you to think carefully. The man began his journey in a sensitive and submissive way towards Jesus. And the first stage in our spiritual journey has to be at least a willingness to consider the claims of Christ. And maybe for many of you, that's exactly how it started. Okay, I'll go to church. Okay, I'll open my Bible. Okay, I'll consider the claims of Jesus. Because when we learn about Jesus, we enter into friendship and relationship with Jesus. The blind man, like I said, could have stopped anywhere in the process and failed in his spiritual journey. And the same is true of you. 
There are many people just like this blind man, recipients of miracles, content to know about Jesus, but unwilling to know Jesus. They know Jesus by name. They know a little bit about his teaching. They know a little bit about his claim. They've been introduced to his love. They've been introduced to his care. They've been introduced to his power. They've been introduced to his promises. They've been in introduced to his presence, they've been introduced to his strength, but they don't really know him. And in verse 12, it says, then they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. The former blind man can see, but can he see everything? Can he see everywhere? Can he see everyone? He's just communicating his experience. And at this point, he's ignorant of Jesus' true identity. And he certainly doesn't know where he's gone. And by the way, at least 12 times in John's gospel, Jesus is called a man. In John 4, 29. In John 5, 12. In John 8, 40. And here in John chapter 9, verse 11. The emphasis in John's gospel, even though it brings up the point of Jesus' humanity, it points to Jesus' deity. Jesus is God. He is completely human. He is completely God. He is not just simply God wearing a human being's face. He's not just God with the skin of humanity wrapped around him. Jesus is completely human in every way that every other human being is completely human. And he's completely God in every way that God is completely God. And so we see the vision begin to expand. In verse 13, Jesus is seen as a helper or a healer. Look what it says. They brought him formally who formerly was blind to Parashim, the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. The neighbors and the friends have got this man, and so they bring him to the religious leaders, the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. Something amazing has happened. Something incredible has happened. And so, hey, let's get the religious leaders to explain to us exactly what's happened here. And in verse 14 it says, Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You remember earlier that Jesus took a little ball of clay, he spit in it, made a little eyeball, stuck it in the socket, and the guy went, washed, and he's healed. And he, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think Jesus deliberately healed this man on the Sabbath? I think the answer is yes. Could he have done it the day before? Certainly. Could he have done it the day after? Certainly. So why does he do it? Why does he do it when he knows that it's going to create such controversy among the religious leaders? Because Jesus wants everyone to know something. And that is that Jesus isn't limited by quote-unquote religious constraints. It was illegal for mortals to work on the Sabbath. But by making the clay and applying the clay and healing the man, Jesus was accused of three unlawful acts. And these religious leaders were looking for evidence to prosecute Jesus for unlawful acts. 
instead of looking at Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, as honoring Him and praising Him for the miracle. By the way, what happens when people refuse to face the evidence about Jesus honestly? And you talk about facing the evidence. Here you are, eyeball to eyeball, with a person who formerly had no eyeball. Have you ever said to someone, why can't you see what the Bible is saying? And it's because they're blind. By the way, the identity of Jesus creates controversy. The identity and the message and the ministry of Jesus creates division. And people want to avoid the issues. It's impossible to come to a united conclusion about Jesus if you continue to remain in the less than true position that he's anything other than what he claims to be. The religious leaders were judging Jesus by the standard of their own observation and interpretation of the law of Moses. In their mind, No one could be a true prophet of God who breaks the Sabbath. In their mind, Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. The religious leaders were oblivious to the fact that Jesus was offering them something much greater than a Sabbath day. Jesus was offering himself as the true rest that comes from God. Remember in Matthew 11, 28, Jesus says that the Sabbath day wasn't made for God but for you, for human beings, so that you would find rest. But Jesus came so that you could experience a full and a final, a complete rest, a secession from labor so that you don't have to work your way to God or work your way into a right relationship with God. And in verse 15 it says, Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. But remember, the Pharisees are asking the wrong question. How did you receive your sight? They wanted to know the mechanics of the miracle. Do you want to know why they wanted to know the mechanics of the miracle? Because they didn't want to know the mechanic who engineered the miracle. Warren Wiersbe points out, not how... But who? He says, simply rearrange the letters H-O-W to W-H-O. Who? People are so interested in the details of the miracle, they don't want to trust the Savior who alone can perform the miracle. And you're going to see something. That's exactly the same way that it is today. People want to know the philosophical, metaphysical, implications of the miracle. They want to do anything other than think about the miracle of the person of Christ. And at this point, the man born blind sees. But he doesn't see everything. The light has come, but he has yet to see Jesus. Now think about it. Think about having been born blind and then living blind your whole life. Your eyes are opened and now you are with the Pharisees. And you see the bulging veins of their neck and the bloodshot red eyes and the furious fists. And you go, hey, you know what? I liked it better in the dark than seeing all of these angry faces. Some confess Jesus 
as a great man, a great teacher, a healer, a helper, a preacher, a lawgiver. But I want you to understand something. The light has come. Jesus is a helper. Jesus is a healer. Jesus has put clay in his eyes. He did wash. It was a miracle. But there's something more. It's still less than the truth. Is Jesus a great man? Yes. Is he a great healer? Yes. Is he a moralist? Yes. Is he a martyr? Yes. Is he a healer? Yes. Yes. And more. The healed man doesn't know Jesus in a personal way. He still has not experienced true faith, genuine salvation, worship of God. And you have friends and family who may say, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher. I believe that he was a great healer. I believe that he was a great moralist. I believe that he was a great martyr. I believe that he was a great example, maybe even the most outstanding example. But they have yet to take the real step. The step where they go from darkness into light. And so we see stage three vision, seeing Jesus as a prophet. Look at verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? Do you understand what's at issue here? He's a sinner. He's a lawbreaker. Well, how do you explain the fact that he hears from God and he does the most amazing things that have ever been done? Wow, we do have a little bit of a dilemma here. And it says, and there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, well, what do you say about him? Because he's opened your eyes. Dude, you're the one who's the recipient of the miracle. What do you have to say? He's a prophet. Now, the former blind beggar is not persuaded by the religious leader's logic or threats. And the Old Testament prophets performed miracles. Moses was the instrument of God's miracles. Elijah was used by God for miracles. Elisha was used by God for miracles. The prophets performed these miracles by the power of God. But as far as the religious leaders were concerned, if Jesus was a prophet, he was a false prophet. And by the way, the world, I think, can broadly be divided into two camps. Those that see Jesus as a prophet of God and those that do not see Jesus as a prophet of God. And by the way, do Hindus see Jesus as a prophet of God? By and large, yes. Do Buddhists see Jesus as a prophet of God? By and large, yes. Do Muslims see Jesus as a prophet of God? By and large, yes. There are billions of people who embrace the notion that Jesus was a prophet. But they don't have a right relationship with God and Christ. Some Jews are willing to concede that Jesus was a great prophet. But that's because they have an inconsistent view of Judaism because Jesus can't be both a great prophet and a liar and a false prophet at exactly the same time certainly the opposite of a prophet is a great office if you are a prophet what does that mean a prophet is a spokesperson for God the prophet was chosen by God to walk with God to talk for God the prophet proclaims the message of God in the power of God and no wonder the religious leaders conclude this man is not from God because the moment that they conclude that he is from God then they have to conclude that his message is from God 
And what is his message? I came from God. I came for you. I came to live the perfect life that you could never live on your own. I came to die on the cross for your sins. For the religious leaders, their only hope was to discredit the miracle. And hope, hope, the blind man really was a religious bait and switch. In the religious leaders' minds, Jesus switched beggars on the unsuspecting crowd. And the best way to get the kind of evidence that he had switched beggars to an unsuspecting crowd was to conduct a thorough investigation, including interviewing the man's parents. So stage four, seeing Jesus as Savior, look at verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. In other words, A, either you, was, you were never born blind. B, that you're lying, whoever you are, you're making this up, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And the religious leaders believed Jesus and the beggar conspired together to fake the miracle in order to fool the people. And certainly they were aware that false prophets could produce false miracles for their own false purposes in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And so in verse 19, they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now, imagine you ask someone, let's say we're all camping, and we're out in the Wyoming wilderness where there's no light source for 50 miles in every direction. And someone points up into the sky and says, How far does the universe go until it comes to an abrupt end, and then what do you see once you get there? What are you going to say to him? No. I can't see that far. The religious leaders ask them, is this your son? How is it that he sees? Notice they don't ask again, who made you see? Now, if the parents refuse to answer either of these questions, they're in trouble. If they refuse to answer the question the religious leaders want, they're in trouble. Either way, they're in trouble. By the way, when the FBI conducts a criminal investigation, respondents are required by law to tell the truth. If a federal agent shows up on your doorstep and says, Hi, I'm with the FBI and I'm conducting a criminal investigation. And it's really important that you tell me the truth. And if you don't tell me the truth, you can be criminally prosecuted. You can be imprisoned for up to five years just for lying to a federal officer. That doesn't include impeding the investigation. In the Jewish system of the first century, the parents could be charged and kicked out of the temple, the synagogue banished from the congregation. And by the way, in the first century, there were two kinds of excommunication. One was called kerim. It's the Hebrew word for the ban. And it meant that you were forbidden ever to return to the synagogue. You were forbidden 
ever to return to the synagogue for life. And when you were banned from a synagogue in the Jewish system, you were banned from every synagogue, everywhere, forever. So the person was cursed from the presence of the people. And they were cursed and cut off from God. And then there was a temporary type of execution or excommunication which could last a week or it could last a month. Sometimes it could last for up to a year. There was just a specific period of time. But here's the point. The religious leaders are willing to use this power to further their wicked agenda. It's their way of saying, unless you answer this question exactly the way that we want you to answer it, we're going to cut you off from fellowship and friendship forever. And you can imagine what a difficulty that is. And so in verse 20 it says, His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. The parents answer the first question honestly and the second question somewhat evasively. Or with what investigators might call prevarication. Double talk. Or the words we use to describe those running for political office. Weasel words. Sophistry. Chicanery. In the end, how do we explain both the question and the answer? Because they're afraid. They're afraid. How did this happen? They were afraid of the fear of man, and sometimes we're afraid. You say that Jesus Christ changed you. You say that He opened your heart, and He opened your eyes, and He forgave your sin, and He changed you. The Bible says in Proverbs 29:25, the fear of man brings a snare. And the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. And they don't care who gets caught in the trap. They don't care how many people suffer. They don't care how many people lose their standing in the community. Is it a serious thing to be cut off from fellowship? Yes. But it's a far more serious thing to be cut off from the truth. And be lost forever. In Isaiah 51, 7, it says, listen to me, you who know righteousness and the religious leaders should have known better. You people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men. Don't be afraid of their insults. Isaiah 51, 12, I, even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? The idea being, look, you shouldn't be afraid of human beings. Jesus said, don't fear the person who can kill you, but rather fear the person who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the types and the shadows. In Moses, you have preparation. In Jesus you have consummation. And so in verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind. So apparently the conversation that had taken place earlier with the parents, he wasn't present. Now he is present. And they say to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Now you have to understand something again. In the first century judicial system, 
the expression, give God the glory, was akin to our saying, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So, help you God. It's, a, it's, it's an invitation to testify and to tell the truth. It's a swearing in. You'll remember when Joshua cross-examined Achan about the sin which brought disaster on Israel. In, in Joshua chapter 7, he began the cross-examination to Achan by saying, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Render praise to Him. And tell me now what you have done. And do not hide it from me. This is the religious leader's way of saying, I'm calling on you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God, because guess what? We're not playing a game here. We're not playing a game here. You're claiming that you were totally blind and that Jesus has healed you, that a powerful supernatural event has taken place. And the religious leaders admit their prejudice right from the start. We know that this man is a sinner. Now imagine you go to court. And the presiding judge says, here's how the presiding judge opens the court proceedings. I adjure you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And by the way, this man is guilty. The prosecutor knows he's guilty. The defense attorney knows he's guilty. He knows he's guilty. His mother knows he's guilty. His father knows he's guilty. Everyone in the room knows he's guilty. Now we can proceed. Would you say that your trial is unjustly or unfairly prejudiced? That's exactly what's happening here. And here's his response. Verse 25. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind. Now I see. Isn't that a powerful statement? I was in darkness. And now I see. You know, I was thinking about this morning about our church's birthday. This is our 16th birthday. I was 16 years old when I became a Christian. 16. I lived in the dark. I was blind. I lived in a world of darkness and wickedness and sinfulness. And then my eyes were open. I saw Jesus. I met Jesus. I confessed my sin and prayed a prayer. And I met Jesus. That's the simple testimony of a Christian experience. That's the power of personal testimony that is irrefutable. It's almost impossible for anyone to be able to look at another person and say, well, again, tell me again what Jesus did for you. He changed me. He forgave me. He gave me new life and new freedom. And it may not contain the flowery language or correct theological terminology. Even when a person and fails to understand or completely communicate. This person just knows something. He knows that he was blind, and now that he sees, William Barclay said, it is better to love Jesus than to love theories about him. And you do love him. 
or you're amused by him, intrigued by him, thoughtful about him. This beggar, born blind, was emboldened by the miracle. He wasn't going to be intimidated. He wasn't going to be bullied. He wasn't going to be threatened. He wasn't going to be coerced. He wasn't going to be pressured. He wasn't going to be extorted. He wasn't going to be frightened. And he wasn't going to be terrorized by religious hypocrites. Because here's his choices. You want me to tell you the truth? I'm telling you the truth. Where there were once sightless sockets of emptiness. I have eyeballs. And I can see you. And I don't necessarily like what I see. It's impossible to deny the facts. When you have time, I want you to make a little note to yourself. To read Psalm 27. And when you do... Read it from the perspective of the man born blind. I'll give you just a tiny little taste in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now the man sees Jesus as a deliverer, as a savior. He makes a strong personal confession about him. He sees the hand of God in his life. He confesses his personal experience. Jesus has delivered him from darkness into light. And like a child who may not understand all of the theological implications, he knows that Jesus is something more than what they're telling him. And in verse 26, it says, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How? Did he open your eyes? The question is asked for the fourth time. And who can blame him for a little impatience? Blind his whole life with a great big world ready to be seen. He's wasting his time with these people. Have you ever met a person, all they wanted to do was argue with you? That was me. I want to argue with you about God, and I want to argue with you about Jesus. I want to argue about philosophy and theology and theodicy. I want to argue about the nature of the philosophical implications of good and evil. I want to argue about the exclusivity of Christ. I want to argue, argue, argue. And God put the exact right person in my life to lead me to Christ. Every question I ever ask him, he just goes, I don't know, man, but you'll see. We were driving to a, to a concert at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And I wanted so bad to argue. Because I wanted to be able to reject the claims of Christ. I wanted to win the argument and not consider what Jesus wanted to do in my life. And in verse 27, he says, look, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple? That's sort of a conversation stopper, isn't it? That's one way to make the wit say, okay, we're done here. We're through talking about this. Then they reviled him. 
and said, you are his disciple. And by the way, this man born blind will join a long list, an army of people who have been reviled for the name of Christ. Have you been reviled? Are you one of those Jesus people? Are you one of those people who actually believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Are you, are you one of the, the people who believe he forgives sins? Are you one of those people? We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Mo, no, Moses, but for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said, why, this is a marvelous thing. You, you don't know where he's from. Yet he's opened my eyes. Now think about the implication of this. Excuse me? You're Pharisees. You're the gatekeepers of orthodoxy and righteousness. You're the people who know everything about God and everything there is to know about God. You're the ones who know the Bible in the Hebrew language. You're the one who observe the rites, the rituals, the feasts and the festivals. You know everything about God, but you don't know about a man who can heal another man who is born blind. Why, this is pretty amazing. He presents a really biblical argument. Jesus has done a wonderful thing. Why, this is a marvelous thing. You don't know where he's from. Jesus has done a wonderful thing. And the fact that Jesus is able to perform the miracle must mean that he's been heard for by God. In verse 31 it says, Now we know that God doesn't hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. The former beggar and former blind man, he has some real theological skills here. He points out, look, God is under no obligation to hear the prayers of bad people. You say that he's a sinner. Therefore, the blind man is hard-pressed to believe that Jesus is a bad person. He says, think about it. Job, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? That's Job 27.9. The psalmist wrote, if I have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 66.18. Isaiah 1.15. When you spread out your hands, and that's exactly what the Jews would do. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Ezekiel 8.18. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a very loud voice, I will not hear them. This is embarrassing. The blind man is giving the religious leaders a Bible study. And then he says in verse 32, since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man is not from God, he couldn't do anything. Moses' miracles, impressive. Elijah's miracles, impressive. Elisha's miracles, impressive. But no one has ever done anything like this. If this man were not from God, and that's the key, from God. The man, the blind man, former blind man reasons, look. Helping and delivering a blind man must have been God's will. Jesus delivered him. Jesus has heard from God. Jesus' prayer has been empowered by God. The previously unknown, impossible, has been done. How could Jesus not be from God? The works of Jesus constituted the proof that he was from God. Therefore, if Jesus was a liar, if Jesus was a fraud, if Jesus was a, a deceiver, if Jesus was an evil man, how do you explain this? They answered and said to him, 
You were completely born in sins. Do you understand what they're saying? You were completely born in sins. The reason why you were born blind is because there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And you're teaching us. And they cast him out. So how do the religious leaders respond to the former beggar's argument? Well, here's how they respond. Abuse. Then they continue with insult. And then they finish with threat. Okay, so let's, let's pause for a moment. When the argument ends with abuse, insult, and threat, guess who's lost the argument? When all you have to offer is insult, abuse, and threat, I think it's time to consider that you don't have an argument. If all you have to offer is anger and screams and threats, I think it's time to concede. St. John Chrysostom, commenting on the passage, said, The Jews cast him out of the temple. And the Lord of the temple found him. For many people who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it creates a huge rift in your family. Pain and arguments. Some of you have grown up in religious traditions that you've since left. And it was hard for you because you made a mental, emotional, physical, financial, familial investment. And it was hard. In verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Jesus will come to the man, but the conversion of his soul is going to be an even greater miracle than the restoration of his eyesight. But that's for next week. Remember how the vision unfolds. He is Jesus in verse 10. He's a prophet in verse 17. He's Christ in verse 22. He's from God in verse 33. And when the eyes of your heart are opened, your vision continues to grow and you see Jesus in a greater and greater way. The light of the world is a very famous picture by Holman Hunt. It was painted in 1854. Some of you are familiar with it. It it portrays Jesus Christ, the thorn crowned, and he's carrying a lantern and he's knocking at a closed door. And when the artist showed the completed picture to some of his friends, a person pointed out what seemed to be an omission. He said, hey, guess what? You left out a handle on the door. He said to the artist and the artist replied, we must open to the light. The handle is on the inside. How dark is your world? If you find yourself spiritually placing your hands along the wall, it is my prayer that God will give you at least enough light so that you can see the handle and grab a hold of it. so that you can open the door. Because when Jesus shows up with the lantern, you'll see Him like you've never seen Him before. And you'll understand like you've never understood before. I'm going to ask you to stand for just a moment.
before I dismiss you. And just pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will open the eyes of our heart. And Lord, like this, like the, the famous hymn goes, that our faith, when our faith becomes sight, when we see and understand that Jesus is all that He says that He is and He can do all that He says that He can do, that, Lord, we will understand and receive Him. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is in a dark, dark dungeon of doubt. They seem consumed by darkness, unable to see anyone or anything clearly. Lord, I pray that the light of your love and the light of forgiveness and the light of hope would begin to shine and that they would, they would see that handle and that they would grasp it and that it, they would open the door to Jesus, to the claims of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, to the promises of Jesus. That if we confess our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us, that we can come to you and know you, And if that's you, and you need to have a right relationship with God and don't, you can pray that prayer. You can reach out even with your eyes closed and in the dark. You see the handle and you know that Jesus wants you to open that door. Just do it. Open the door. Let him in. Experience friendship and fellowship with him and Christian. For those of you Christians who've been living a life of doubt and unbelief, of disobedience and detachment from Jesus, Lord, I pray that the presence of light in their lives would become radiant and shine, that they could see their life in a new and a fresh way, and that they can walk in a direction of, a, a direction of humility and obedience, of testimony, of the reality of who Jesus is and, and what he's done in your life. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm going to be here at the front of the church after the service. If you need to talk, just come on down and I'll be more than happy to talk with you and pray with you. Go ahead, Ryan. Let's sing